Good morning and welcome to Falking Around. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falking Around podcast. We got a lot going on in the world of sports. Holy crap. I'm going to squeeze it into an hour-ish show, but there is so much going on and and, and big, big stories. It's going to be a lot of fun. Certainly going to get to the NFL. Bill's Thanksgiving, they saved my Thanksgiving because the Cowboys nearly ruined it. Going to talk about that. College football is crazy. SU Hoops sucks. It's the Sabres drew 10,000 people, which it was a stand-up for cancer night, so maybe that was why 10,000 people showed up. But college football playoffs are winding down, but that's not even the story in college football. So, so much to get to. But I want to start with Major League Baseball. And a good friend of mine and my former colleague at the Evil Empire and a guy who covered baseball for the Evil Empire, I'm referring to iHeartRadio, I don't like mentioning that term, so I'll just use Evil Empire, is Sam Schreier. And I'm going to start with baseball because Sam, like me, huge Mets fan, but he's also a huge baseball fan. Sam, welcome to Falcon Around. Our first ever guest on Falcon Around is you, my friend. I'm so excited. When we chatted yesterday and you said this might be a possibility, I'm super, super stoked to talk to you. And I'm just so excited. I've been like a kid in a candy store the past 24 hours. I got to be honest with you. Well, if, if you're any kind of baseball fan and if you've been paying attention, let me give us some backdrop. Today's November 30th and tomorrow, December 1st or December 2nd, they haven't really decided which day. It's expected that there's going to be a lockout because the, the collective bargaining agreement is up in baseball. They got to do some things and the owners are hell bent on changing the way the money is distributed. So what are they doing prior to that? They're spending boatloads of money and it, it's just been crazy, but everyone's trying to get the deals in before the lockout, which is going to happen either tomorrow or the next day. And then baseball will essentially shut down. So it's been crazy already this morning. Morning. Javi Baez, the former Met, goes to the Tigers. Tigers spending money. The Rangers spending crazy money. Bringing in Seager from the Dodgers and Simeon from the Blue Jays. They spent over a half a billion dollars. But the real reason I wanted Sammy on this show, because this summer he was writing a blog about the New York Mets, and he was covering the New York Mets. And if you've listened to me ever, you know I'm a Mets fan, and the Mets have spent some money. And the big fish, obviously, was Max Scherzer. Sammy, what does Max Scherzer at age 37 bring to the Mets? Well, that was just what I was going to bounce off you. I think any other pitcher that you were to bring in at 37 years old, I think there's a big issue. Max is coming off a season where I was just looking at this. He won 15 games and his ERA was under three. His whip Two, four, was six. All, yeah, exactly. And his whip, his whip was what under one or close to one. Um, and he's pitching. And it's not just he's like pitching in any old thing. He was pitching uh, in in the playoffs in a race with. And I know he went out with the Nationals and they traded him. And and the thought was that you know he didn't want to be on the East Coast, but he's going to the West Coast. He's going to play for the Dodgers, and he's play, he's pitching in Game Five of the NLDS in relief in the ninth inning against their arch rival Giants. I mean, this is the type of guy that the Mets are getting in this situation. And now with the one-two punch at the top of their lineup, I love that pitcher by. By the way, the top of the the top of their lineup, that's absolute or top of their rotation rather, 
I, I, it's unbelievable. I mean, I I don't think there's anything that can compare to that besides maybe the Phillies. Uh, what is it? Maybe in 20, not 2009, maybe uh, when they had uh, what did they had the, the, the late uh, um, Royals, not Royals, Roy Holiday and Cliff Roy Lee. Holiday, yes. Yes. And Cliff Lee at the top of that rotation. That didn't actually work out for them in the end. Uh, but I, I, I don't think there's anything that compares to this. And at 37, um, I typically would say no way, but not with Max. Yeah, and he last year the two four six ERA was the best ERA in his career, and he you mentioned he was with the Nationals and they traded him. He ended up with a fifteen and four overall record, which I know wins don't matter anymore, but I still look at one loss record. And the point being that even on a bad Nationals team, he kept them in games and gave them a chance to win. He didn't lose games with the Nationals, and and I guess wins don't matter, but losses certainly do. So. It's really impressive. The other question, though, and you mentioned he and DeGrom, and for my money, Jake DeGrom's the best pitcher in Major League Baseball. Scherzer's second, and Garrett Cole's probably third. Garrett Cole's a cheater, so we discount him immediately. But if you look at Scherzer and DeGrom together, the question is health. Is this one-two combo going to be healthy to give them you know, between them, 350 innings next year. Well, I think that the biggest question mark is more so on Jake than it would be on Max, only because we really, truly don't know what's going on with Jake's arm, right? There was talk that initially, oh, he's just tired. Oh, he's going to miss a start. He comes in for a couple pitches, a couple innings. They're not, they're, they're not telling us exactly what's happening. And then, and then at the all-star break, he shut down for the rest of the season. And then it comes out that he has some sort of issue with his elbow, but it's not a major thing. And Sandy says, well, maybe it is. And J- and then Jake says, maybe it's not. So I still think that Jake is an absolute question mark, which is why the Mets absolutely 100% had to do this move because they don't know what's going on with him. You don't know what's going to happen with uh, – they're probably not going to re-sign Marcus Stroman. Um, and you don't know what's going to happen in that situation. But the thing with Max is is that he really – if you look at the most part of what he's done, he's made most of his starts throughout his career. I know in the NLCS, he was tired to pitch game six, but that went back to what I said before was when he was in the, in the NLDS when he pitched in relief in the ninth inning and they kind of stretched him in that first game. And then he said he would have been good to go for game seven. So I think that the issue for the Mets is, is really with Jake more so than it is with Max. You mentioned Marcus Stroman, and you know the Mets tried to get Steven Matz back. They, they they were in that right to the end. Cohen tweeted out his frustration with the agent there and didn't like the way things came down. I wonder now, losing out on Matz, you, you've got at the top of the rotation, obviously we've talked about Scherzer and DeGrom. Then you got Taiwan Walker, and, and Taiwan Walker was solid last year. Looked like he ran out of gas in the second half, and, and that was as much as he's ever pitched. He's been a guy who's dealt with injuries his entire career. But beyond that, you've got young guys like David Peterson, Tyler Miguel. You wonder, is their chance now they pivot and go back to Stroman? Because if you look at Stroman and Walker as your 3-4, that's depth in the rotation, and the young guys serve as insurance should one of them, DeGrom, not be able to make their starts. Well, that, that's a good question, and I kind of thought about that a little bit. However, 
if you listen to what Stephen Cohen says about how he wants the organization to be run and how he wants to change the culture and change different things, Marcus is a type of guy that really takes offense to media questions being criticized. Um, there was an issue that happened yesterday or the day before. I don't know if you saw this, uh, but uh, the old Mets beat writer who's now writing for uh, for the Athletic now um, was questioned Marcus about a comment that he made about Anthony DeComo on Twitter. He used a racial slur. There was a racial slur that was written down um, on on that, and there you go. He used it, mm-hmm. and he. He liked he liked it, and so he was called out by Mark. Mark Carrig called him out on it. Why did you do this? And Marcus actually denied that he did it and said that pretty much his account was hacked and people can do this all the time. And I think that if you really want to send a message that you're really changing it, because I think that people are are probably upset with what happened in this situation, and you don't want this thing. I think you kind of have to cut ties and move on to a different direction. Yeah, it's it's interesting because the Mets now they do have a general manager, Donnie Epler's the GM finally. They they've had issues under Alderson and Cohen bringing guys in who had something in their past, whether it be a sexual harassment and, and the former GM or temporary GM who got himself a DWI at four in the morning. Apparently White Plains doesn't have Uber. Maybe they should look into that. They could probably make some money there. But it's just been one thing after another. And, and with Cohen, he said when he bought the team, money's no object. And, and, you know, this, as happy as I am as a Met fan, I remember some guy about 60 miles west of here when he bought a hockey team said if he wants more money, he'll build, a, a, dig another well. And, and that team's been a pile of shit since he bought it. And it's still a pile of shit. And, and it scares me when guys come in and spend money just to spend money, it's certainly a, a different tactic. But the the signings that the Mets have made this offseason, let me, let me start with Escobar, who gives them some flexibility in the infield. Two years, $20 million. He's going to hit some home runs. Kahana is a high on-base percentage guy, which is right out of the Alderson playbook. He's two years, $26.5 million, capable of hitting the long ball. Another guy, position flexibility. And then Sterling Marte, who they gave up $78 million over four years, a true center fielder. And he may be the biggest one for me because as much as they love Brandon Nimmo, Brandon Nimmo's a terrible center fielder. He can't throw from center field to, to second base with a cutoff man. He just, he's not that guy. So now likely he'll move to right field, which I think will be a disaster because he just can't play that position, ultimately end up in left field. I guess my point is they've done things smartly. They're building with older guys. And there's a reason, in my opinion, they're bringing in older guys on short-term contracts because at the high end of their farm system, they've got some guys who are big-time prospects. Now, the farm system's not deep, but they got some really good bats and one exceptional arm down there, don't they? They do. They do. And I think it's a smart way to be handling the way that this is going. We, we talked about this the other day. And even a guy like you got Beatty. You got Beatty that's waiting in the wings, right? So even if they're going to bring in these guys in this high numbers and they're going to quote unquote go through the luxury tax, which we don't even know what the luxury tax is going to be. If, if you, there's going to be I, one after the CBA. 
Right, right. And even if there is, those contracts are all going to fall off anyways within two to three years. So you're not, you really, the number is there and you're going to pay a price at this point. But the deals that they're making are not necessarily bad deals in which most of the time I would say, holy cow, this guy's spending. And I remember when he came in initially at his initial press conference, um, when they introduced him as the owner, he says, we're going to spend, but we don't want to be drunken sailors. Well, this year he's kind of changed the tune. And I think when you made the point about when Steven Matz went to the Cardinals and he was offended by uh, by the that we thought we had a deal. I don't think they ever really thought they had a deal. I think that Steven Matz the whole time really had no interest in coming back there. And actually, I think it's going to work out in the end. I mean, we've sailed this ship before, right? It didn't really work out in the end. He was traded away. Um, I think he was determined to spend this money and get the right type of players that came into New York. And if you have the right type of players, even though it costs a lot of money, um, you're getting these clubhouse guys that are coming in there, which was, again, one of the, the things that, uh, that was said about the Mets was that the clubhouse was kind of shaken up. There was a lot of things with Luis Rojas that he couldn't handle some of the personalities that were in there. Even Francisco Lindor <laughs> kind of rubbed guys the wrong way. You have these guys now, including Max Scherzer, who is a big-time clubhouse guy. People people flock to that, and I think Lindor's kind of learned his lesson. I'm really curious to see how this kind of all meshes together whenever there is going to be baseball this season. Yeah, it's interesting because you mentioned Lindor in the clubhouse, and the more we hear about the Lindor-McNeil incident, McNeil seems like somebody who maybe doesn't go along with things as well, and I wouldn't be surprised if he's the odd man out because they're not going to move on from Lindor if there's a problem there. And again, looking at a guy like Escobar who could play third or second, that gives them a little flexibility there. I really thought they would try hard to bring back a guy like Javi Baez. They certainly didn't. Maybe they pivot with Chris Bryant to bring him in. I would expect one more move before this day is out or the lockout is imposed. But Sam, the interesting thing to me about the Mets right now is all this player movement and everyone forgets one very key thing, or maybe it's not such a key thing anymore. They don't have a freaking manager. Yeah. Yeah. And I was just thinking about that, right? But how attractive is it now to sit, to try to get a manager to manage this team with the pieces that you put into place? Okay, um, I know it's on paper. I know that that sometimes paper doesn't always win what it's going to be, and spending money is not necessarily the way that it's going to go in the end. But if you're a, if you're a guy that they're going to try to contact to manage this team, and I actually do think you might you're going to probably get a Brad Osmus. Him him and Epler are very close. Um, he was there in, in Los Angeles at the time. Uh, a guy like Buck Showalter might be considered in that situation. But if you're those guys and you see what this roster's already assembled, and you know you have an owner that can spend money, and you already have a GM that's been as aggressive as he's been in a week on the job, don't you think that they're going to probably have a better option now at this point? Yeah, it, it's certainly going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Uh, you know, I mentioned the guys in the farm system. They have a pitcher, Matt Allen, whose upside is, is, is number one, number two starter type stuff. You mentioned Brett Beatty, third base, likely end up in left field. Mark Vinettos is another third base prospect, likely, likely this year. He starts a year in Syracuse, so potentially he could be in New York this year. And they have a shortstop who's likely to end up in center field ultimately, and Ronnie Mauricio. 
But the crown jewel is a 19-year-old catcher. And the reason they did what they did last year, bringing in James McCann on a four-year deal, because not this year, maybe late next year, but definitely the year after, Francisco Alvarez, who's one of the top 10 prospects now in all of baseball, 19-year-old kid, tore it up in single A, likely to be a Binghamton this year, and they're going to take their time with this kid. So... Again, it's you look at what the Dodgers did and what the Red Sox have done, frankly, where you bring your system along and you, you get guys in the system who are at the high end, who are valuable either to put on your field or to use in trades and then supplement them by spending money. 100%. And Cohen made a specific point, and you and I were talking about this before, but Cohen made a specific point to wanting to model the team after what the Dodgers have done. Why are the Dodgers successful? Yes, the Dodgers have won one World Series. That's one more World Series than the Mets have won, though, right? But the Dodgers are always up there between second place, first place, making the playoffs year in and year out. I mean, I can't remember the last time the Dodgers missed the playoffs, right? So they're developing. There's just guy after guy after guy, guys weeding in the wings. I mean, I know they lost Corey Seager yesterday, but that just frees up more money for them to be able to pay Trey Turner in in, in Los Angeles. So the Mets are going to model themselves after teams that are doing the right way, which is more than you could ever say in the past. When the Wilpons were around, do you think that Max Scherzer would be in New York? No way. I don't think there's any chance ever that he'd be there. I mean, I know that the Beltron deal was signed at that point, but you look all all over the times that they were not able to do that. And they were so cash strapped. And no matter what they say and what they say publicly, they were never, ever, ever going to do that unless unless there was there was some something that magical happened at that point in time. So they had to have Cohen in that situation and he's building it the right way. He's building it the right way because he's using the upper level. They're going to have a ton of draft picks this year, so they're going to be able to sort of kind of restock that system. They're building through free agency, and then let's see how the cards play out in the end. You mentioned the draft picks. The guys that the Mets have signed, they've given up no draft pick compensation for any of these guys. Guys like Robbie Ray are costing teams their draft picks. The Mets haven't lost any. Sammy, last question. You've got... Seattle signing Robbie Ray, Texas, we mentioned, spending a bunch of money. The Mets spending like drunken sailors. Yankees not spending anything. The Red Sox not spending anything. The Tigers are. I think it's good for baseball. Your thoughts, is this overall good for baseball, especially when you got teams like Joe's Pirates and the Baltimore Orioles doing absolutely nothing to try to win? Well, you know, that's a good question. And I've kind of thought about this a little bit, right? Um, you know, you got a team like the Texas Rangers who brought in two Scott Boris clients uh, this week two Scott, to huge monster deals. I mean, Boris is getting deal after deal after deal after deal. I think that one of the small is going to end up with a Michael Conforto type of player, too. Um, so Boris will get another guy off the board here shortly as well. But to answer your question directly, I think it is good. I think you want to see some of these smaller teams um, trying to start to to pick up where they're going, right? Um, and, and I know some of these real small teams, if you're talking about like a Pittsburgh or or uh, or a Cleveland, that they're going to kind of try to unload and rebuild, and that's the philosophy that they have to do. But I think it's been proven right now, and for the most part, I think there's some exceptions um, that for the most part right now is spending and building it that way is becoming to, to, to be able to win in a sustained purpose and winning championships. And I think, I think that's what's going to have to be done in order to be successful. Yeah, it's, it's, it's certainly a fun time. And, and this 
I'm enjoying this time in baseball because the next few weeks, actually, the next few weeks are just going to be quiet. From now till mid-January, you won't hear much about baseball after this lockout begins, likely because of the situation with the lockout. And then as we get closer to spring training, people realize spring training is not going to happen on time. That's when you'll start seeing some chatter pick up. And then there's going to be a mad dash once the lockout ends to bring people in. So the smart team signing money now that may be crazy money, at least their plan's going to be in place when spring training opens. Well, I, again, I, I think I, I, I totally agree with you, and I think it's smart, and I enjoy this. I, I wish this happened every year, that there was mass signings. It's like the NBA, right? Bomb, 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 sign, 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 sign. And I'm excited. Baseball's relevant at this point in time, and usually on November 20th or November 30th, baseball's not a relevant thing. So you're right, Carl. Sam Schreier, Sammy, I always appreciate talking to you, whether it's we're calling eight-man football games or we're doing a show. <laughs> I love it, brother. Be good. We'll talk soon, my friend. Carl, thanks for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Carl. Thanks, Joe. We'll talk to you guys soon. Sam Schreier, my man. And, and it's just, you know, great stuff for baseball. And it's almost what Sam said there at the end. I popped into my head. Baseball's getting a lot of publicity now in the heart of football season with college football going crazy, college basketball kicking off, the NBA, and, of course, hockey going on. It's almost like have an early signing period till November 30th and then shut it down from November 30th to January 15th and and not let. So you get a couple periods of time when everyone's paying attention to baseball and then leave it alone through the holidays and then pick it up again, build momentum into spring training. So a lot going on in the world of baseball, but of course it is football season. So back to what we always talk about on this podcast. That is the NFL and the Buffalo Bills. Now, Thanksgiving Day, the Bills went down to the Big Easy. And I got to say this first before we get to the football game. Bills Mafia travels like a college football program. If you've ever been to a Final Four or even a regional uh, situation where like a Kansas or a Kentucky or one of the true blue bloods of college basketball is there. And you're in town and you're going to the bars and you're going around town. You see people in gear the entire time and, and people travel in a huge way to support their team. I know there's cowboy fans across the country. I know there are a lot of people across the country who end up like traveling to their games, but not like this. I don't know that there's another NFL team that travels en masse to cities the way Bill's Mafia does. They had a parade down in New Orleans for Bill's Mafia. It was crazy the amount of Bill's jerseys on Bourbon Street. Just insanity. I, I really have never seen anything in the NFL like it. It's truly a college football mentality in the NFL. So Bills Mafia, props to you. I think it's fantastic. As for the Bills, that night, it was a good night for the Bills. Their offensive line didn't play well yet again, and it's not going to play well. If they get John Feliciano back, if they get Spencer Brown back, it'll be better. But it's not going to be good. It just simply isn't. But I think what happened, and in part because of the lead, 
You saw the Bills make a concerted effort to run the football. They ended up having 32 rushing attempts in the game, and that's an important thing. With a lead, you've got to be able to run the ball. They saw something on film and had seen other teams' quarterbacks successfully run the football against the Saints. So Josh Allen ran it eight times, and most of those runs were designed runs, and he got 43 yards on it. Devin Singletary ran it 15 times. Matt Breida who's become a part now uh, of this offense. Zach Moss inactive yet again, and I I don't expect that to change unless there's an injury somewhere along the line. Breedig carried it nine times. He also caught a touchdown pass in the game. So there was that. Dawson Knox had a couple of touchdowns. Stephon Diggs again. Very good. The offense was really good. Josh Allen was really good. He made two bad throws, one of which his arm was hit when he threw, but it was a a play that he held the ball too long. And, you know, if we're going to get critical of a a guy, we frankly should because Josh Allen's now paid like a guy you need to be critical of. He needs to be better than that as far as getting the ball out. And it's – you know, he's still a young, inexperienced quarterback, and he was going against good defense in New Orleans. But you've got to be able to to understand that and understand the limitations of your offensive line and not allow yourself to get hit like that. Uh, a few more bad refereeing plays. Sean McDermott very upset in one play in particular where Allen was hit low and brought down after the throw. And it's, it's a 100% roughing the passer call. We've seen it. Time and time again this year, but we didn't see it there. And I do believe that the the name on the back of the jersey of the quarterback has a lot to do with whether or not that quarterback is going to get a flag for some close roughing the passer penalties. Josh Allen's not there yet. There was a taunting call where a guy's in his ear hole, literally yelling at him. And Josh tried to to pretend like he got head butted, but. Those are taunting calls. In the NFL, the inconsistency of the NFL's officiating is is incredibly bothersome to me. I'm somebody who pays a lot of attention to officiating because I've done it for so long. And if you're going to have a philosophy of this, you better stick to that philosophy. Because if you call it one week, you damn well better call it the next week. And it's not happening in the NFL, and it didn't happen on Thanksgiving night. The Saints, their quarterback situation has not been good. Trevor Simeon was the guy who who got the call, in part because of an injury, in part because he's the better all-around quarterback, he's not somebody who can run the ball as well, but he's somebody who could throw it a little bit better. I don't know what New Orleans is going to do long-term with their quarterback without Jameis Winston, who I thought was somebody who could really grow under Sean Payton down there. They're in trouble without Alvin Kamara. Look, this was a wounded team, but At the same time, it's an NFL team. The Bills did what they had to do. One guy I want to talk about defensively who's just been getting better and better and better is Ed Oliver. Oliver is the best defensive lineman the Bills have now. And I wouldn't have said that at the beginning of the season. But it is clear. This guy is playing at a different level. And, you know, here in year three, we've seen Ed Oliver's 
motor continue, but the light has gone on. And it looks as though the technique has allowed him to figure out advantages to use his quickness and get involved in plays. He's taken a huge step forward. The step that Tremaine Edmonds hasn't taken, Ed Oliver has taken. Tremaine Edmonds is a good player. He's been a good player. He hasn't taken a step forward to become a better player, in my opinion. He's better than he was as a rookie, certainly, but he hasn't, we haven't seen that noticeable big step. With Ed Oliver, over the last four or five games, if you've watched him, that step is so noticeable. It has been a huge improvement. And going forward, the Bills need to be conscious of when team building. Now, they need to be conscious of the fact that they've got a stud, speed player at the at the defensive tackle position. They need to put a big body next to him, a Starlatulule type of player, only a younger, more active, in my opinion, Starlatulule, to take up blockers to allow Oliver to continue to grow as a player because I really think there's a chance we may now see him as a superstar going forward. There was a downside to to the game on Thursday night, and that was the loss of Trey White to an ACL. Trey done for the year, the Bills' best cornerback, one of the best cornerbacks in the league, a huge part of the heartbeat of this team. Trey White is a guy who has fun playing football. And he, he sets the tone for that secondary. And that secondary is the strength of this defense. Make no doubt about it that the best part of this defense is the secondary. And without Trey White, it's going to be tested. Now, Levi Wallace, the other corner who started opposite Trey, has been pretty good this year. But now he's going to be cast in a different light. Trey White wasn't tried very much. Because you had Levi Wallace on the other side. Levi Wallace's improvement has been that he's been able to withstand those attempts at going at him. And now you're going to bring Dane Jackson, last year's seventh-round draft pick, who's played well in spots, but now as a full-time starter, we're going to see how good Dane Jackson can be. He's a kid who's played well in parts, but there's a big difference going from we need you for 10 plays to you go out there and play the entire game. I like Dane Jackson. I like his potential, but I think he's going to be tested quickly and often as we go forward. And it's going to start Monday night because Monday night, the Bills have their most important game of the season. The Bills currently are at seven and four. They're in second place looking up at New England, who's eight and four. The Pats come to Buffalo for a Monday night game a week from last night. And it, this game should be great. You look at the teams going forward. And I, I really think it's imperative that the Bills win the AFC East and get home field advantage. And to do that, obviously, they've got to knock off the Patriots and, and they probably need to do it twice. But they certainly need to at least split. If you look at the games coming up for these two teams, they face off against each other twice. They have a home and home. The Bills' other games are at Tampa. Tampa's not playing great right now, but that's a tough matchup on the road. They have Carolina in 
Ralph Wilson Stadium. Yeah, I know it's not called that anymore, but I won't refer to it as the new name because I think it's bullshit that an insurance company spends that kind of money for naming rights. So political statement, if you will, but go with me. Carolina comes to the Ralph. That's going to be a, a, a game that the Bills certainly need to win. In the last two games for the Bills, both at home, Atlanta and the Jets. So there are three home games, actually four home games left on the schedule. Three of them should be wins. The Patriots, they win that. Those four home games, they go forward to the rest of the year. They end up at 11 and 6. Is that going to be good enough? Well, you look at the Patriots. They obviously have the home and home with the Bills. So if they were to split those, they also are at Indy. They have the Jags in New England and then finish up at Miami. So I would expect the Patriots to win four of their last games. So I'm looking at it this way. If the Bills are going to win the division, and you see in the playoff picture that's up there, they're currently a wild card and in pretty good shape with that wild card. But if the Bills are going to win the division, they've got to sweep New England to do it, in my opinion. So it starts a week from Monday. I found an interesting note. I was looking at everyone talks about what the Bills don't do well. They don't stop the run particularly well, and they don't run the ball particularly well. Well, they did so against a wounded New Orleans Saints team, but can they do so against the Patriots? Well, the Bills actually have a higher average rushing yards per game than the Patriots. The Patriots were were led to believe, I'll say it that way, that they're a ground-and-pound team with a rookie quarterback, Mac Jones. I don't believe that they are. I think their team that uses the run when it's prudent to do so and uses a short passing game, almost like the old throwback West Coast offense of the Joe Montana, Steve Young 49ers, as their running game. And I think that's where Mac Jones, his growth has been so good. They don't have a ton of weapons on the outside, but man, do they get after it defensively. So I'll be very intrigued to see this game, the matchup, what does Belichick come up with? We know that he is his ability to confuse young quarterbacks, and Josh is still a young quarterback. How the Bills handle that, how they stop Mac Jones, the guy who's been completing 70% of his passes on the year. He's been really accurate and really smart. Can the Bills confuse him? It's going to be a great chess match and should be an excellent, excellent game a week from Monday. And again, the most important game the Bills will play all year because when they thought this season started, a lot of people discounted New England as a challenger to them. While through bad losses and good wins by the Patriots, they have become that formidable formidable opponent yet again. And the Bills, they need to take care of business against their biggest rival. And I, I for one, am very glad that the Patriots are good because I think it brings great theater back to the game. The Patriots-Bills are both good, which we haven't seen a ton of. When the Patriots were dominant, the Bills weren't very good. Last year, the the Bills were dominant. The Patriots weren't very good. Now they're both good. This hasn't been a rivalry because it's been a domination by the Patriots. 
But now that they're both good, this could really grow into a very good rivalry. It should be a lot of fun watching these games go through. It's going to be a tough one, and I know the Bills are favored at home, but watch this game, and and we'll see a guy, Matt Judon, who's just been spectacular, and the Bills better know where he is, and that offensive line is going to be severely tested. So that's the Bills report. The other games on Thanksgiving, the Bears beat the Lions, and Man, Matt Nagy's dead man walking. This game was was not entertaining unless you're a diehard football fan. So that said, I loved it. I thought it was great. The Bears are just not an exciting team anyway. Andy Dalton played pretty well, to be honest with you, over 300 yards. But the Lions... They they just have so many needs. They're not good. They lose DeAndre Swift early in the game to a shoulder injury. Goff has no one to throw to. Their offensive line has a few good pieces, but they're not very good yet. Defensively, they're just not there. I, I, I like Matt Campbell. I don't know if, how long he's going to get there because he's not going to win more than two games this year. They got to figure some things out in Detroit and they got to get some talent because they are not there. The Cowboys Raiders game was a great Thanksgiving Day game. The Cowboys going in without Amari Cooper, CD Lamb. Of course, their two best pass rushers, Demarcus Lawrence, is out and, and as well as Randy Gregory. So they're a wounded team, but they were still able to put up 33 points. The other thing about this game watching it from a Cowboys perspective was the fact that if you've watched the Cowboys this year and I watch them quite closely, they're better with Tony Pollard at running back than they are with Ezekiel Elliott. He brings more to the table right now than Ezekiel Elliott. And I know Zeke's banged up and they play Thursday night again. I wouldn't be surprised if one of these games of the next few and they'll say, because we want to give Zeke some rest, Tony Pollard's going to get 20 carries. We're going to see, again, like I said earlier, it's different when you're the full-time guy. I talked about Dane Jackson. It's going to be different when Tony Pollard's the full-time guy. But I think there's going to be a game that they're going to hold out Zeke and see what Tony Pollard can do. And what I've seen so far, they're a better team with Tony Pollard in. As for the Raiders, Derek Carr played an excellent game. They lose Darren Waller. We had a Zay Jones sighting yet again, and that kills me every time I see it. It's just the Raiders are a team that won't go away. They've had an unbelievably tumultuous season. When you look at the Gruden thing, their two first-round picks from last year, both gone. All the things that have gone on, here they show up at a short week, travel to Dallas, and put up 36 points and get a win. Yeah, the officiating, you can say what you want. There were way too many penalties and horrific calls both ways. Anthony Brown ends up with four PIs. The last one I did not like whatsoever. I I just thought in overtime, first off, there wasn't much contact. I know he didn't turn around, but let him play a little bit. You're in overtime of a big boy football game. You just handed them the game. 28 penalties combined. And Mike McCarthy, you see him. He's COVID on the COVID-restricted list, will miss Thursday's game. The Sunday's games, on to them. Bengals blew out the Steelers. Joe, sorry again, didn't mean it, but Ben, it's time. Great career, Canton bound, but 
That offensive line's not great. He's not good anymore. The defense is good enough. Usually, it certainly wasn't on Sunday. Joe Mixon had another big day. 28 carries for Joe Mixon, 165 yards. Joe Mixon and and the Bengals the last two weeks, 60 carries. You're starting to see teams who are able to run the football many, many times because they're confident in their offensive line and their back and their quarterback can make plays. But you're starting to see teams take advantage of the team-building philosophy that has gone on for years. It used to be, many years ago, stop the run, run the football, you win games. Then it morphed into a quarterback league, a passing league. It's pass the ball, stop the pass. Well, many teams have been built to stop the pass. And because of that, they're not good at stopping the run. The Bills are a prime example of that sort of philosophy. So with that in mind, you look at, the way things have been built, you're smart if you're capable to run the ball against a pass defense. And that's what we're starting to see. The Bengals, even though they have a great receiving core with Chase and Higgins and Boyd and, and Burrow certainly is very capable. They've also got Mixon back there, and and they're not afraid to pound the ball with him. Two teams that need a new philosophy or team building or a reset or whatever, Jets and Texans played. How many people watched that game? Like, if I gave you a 50-yard line ticket and a free trip to Houston to watch it, would you go? I mean, the Jets and Texans, that's bad. Zach Wilson, back from injury, yeah. I just I, I don't I don't see it there. But I'll point this out. It's my glass half full approach. If the draft was held this week, the Jets would have the fourth and fifth picks in the draft. Hopefully Joe Douglas is the GM that gets to make those picks. There you see the draft board. The New York papers are all over the draft for next year because you see the Giants at six and seven. By the way, Philadelphia at nine and ten. Never in my memory have three teams had multiple picks in the first two rounds. So the draft will be an interesting show to say the least. And hopefully the Jets figure something out because they got a good fan base as do the Giants and the biggest city in the world could certainly use some good football. The Bucks Indy was a good game. The Bucks end up winning 38-31. Speaking of running games, Leonard Fournette with four touchdowns, 100 yards, pounding the rock. Jonathan Taylor only had a few carries in the first half. Didn't understand that philosophy. I know Tampa is a tough team to run against with Vitavea in the middle of that defensive line and Andamakan Sue as well, but you still got to stick to your strengths. Indy didn't do that, fell behind a little bit, almost came all the way back. Carson Wentz threw it 44 times on the day, ended up with a couple picks as well. Another bad game, Atlanta beats the Jags. Cordell Patterson. How about the rebirth of this guy? I I didn't even know he was in the league early in the year, and now he's putting up 100-yard rushing games. Props to the Falcons for figuring out a way to use him. He's been a good player for a long time, and nobody's used him the way Arthur Smith Smith has done so in Atlanta. So that is a pretty cool thing that they're doing, and, and I think it's something that teams will look at after the season, is there somebody like him that we can maybe use as a hybrid? Because San Francisco's doing it with Debo Samuel as well. 
Miami beat Carolina. Tua, by the way, 70% for completion percentage now for the season. Two games in a row, over 80%. I know they're not happy with Tua and looking to bring in Deshaun Watson, but sometimes what you have is better than what you think. And Tua may be that guy if you give him some time for Carolina. Christian McCaffrey, now done for the year, can't stay on the field. The Pats beat the Titans, and it was an easy win. The Titans are the same without Derrick Henry. But the Titans had 200-yard rushers against the Patriots on Sunday. And you think about that, and you're like, wow, how did they fall behind? What Bill Belichick does is he takes away what you're good at. So looking ahead to the Bills game, think about that. They're going to take away Ryan Tannehill. Because they're not worried about the run game beating you. And Ryan Tannehill threw interceptions again. And because of that, they're going to be in trouble turning the ball over. So he takes away the pass game and lets them run it, knowing that they won't stick to it. He was right. He's smart. And this week, I expect them to try to do the same. If the Bills want to run it against New England, I think they'll have opportunities. They're not going to be able to throw the ball as easily as they would like. The Giants beat the Eagles, and, and, and for the Eagles, they have a wide receiver, Jalen Rager, who was a first-round or a second-round pick last year. How do you get back on the team bus when you drop two touchdown passes that would win the game? And I mean drop, flat-out drop two touchdown passes. Horrible. Just horrible that he was doing that. Jalen Hurts didn't have a good game, but battled to the end. The Giants... I know it's a win. Best thing I can say about the Giants is they've got the fifth and sixth pick in the draft coming up. So the new GM will certainly have that. The Chargers' mercurial season continues. They go to Denver and get beat up. And a big play in the game was a pick six by Patrick Sertain, the young quarterback for Denver. Denver's got a very good defense still. Vic Fangio's dead man walking on the sideline. But the the pick six, Justin Herbert, Rocket arm throws a fastball to Eckler out in the flat, and, and it goes off his hands right to certain easy pick six. Just one of those throws that a young quarterback doesn't need to throw a 95-mile-an-hour fastball. Sometimes just get it over, and that's all he needed to do in that play. He'll learn. He's a great young quarterback, and he's only going to get better. But I think these losses are learning experiences for them. Packers and Rams was a good game. The Rams lose their third game in a row, and the Rams are getting out physical in each of those losses. For Aaron Rodgers, his toes all busted up. He showed the media's toe last week. I don't still don't know why he did that, but whatever. Remember in the summer when Aaron Rodgers didn't care about football? Remember when Aaron Rodgers wasn't somebody who, who was going to play and didn't didn't care? It sure looks like a dude who cares. You had the 49ers and Vikings, real good game, and I mentioned the running game. Vikings, Kirk Cousins ends up lining up under guard instead of center, one of the most bizarre things. That'll be a blooper forever. They lose Dalvin Cook for at least a couple games with a separated shoulder. But the 49ers have become a very physical running game. Elijah Mitchell, another 100-yard game. I mentioned Debo Samuel. He's going to be out for a couple games. But they're a physical running game, and, and it's changed their season. Another team who's going to stick to running the football as long as this season continues for them. And teams now, I think, are going to have to alter the way they're building their defense because there are a number of teams willing to run it. The Sunday night game was ugly. 
Lamar Jackson, four interceptions. Baker Mayfield, I, I know he's hurt. I know Baker's hurt. If he's that hurt, he shouldn't be out there. And I don't want to sound like Kareem Hunt's father or even Odell Beckham's father, but that was terrible. That was a terrible performance by Baker Mayfield. It just was. And I'm not somebody who wants to pile on this guy because I kind of like his edge, but he's not the guy there. He really isn't. And I don't care how hurt he is. If he's that hurt, then let Case Keenum be the quarterback. Because he's hurting his team in a big, big way. The Browns' good season looks awful. Speaking of if he's hurt, maybe he shouldn't be out there. Last night, the Washington football team beat Seattle. The football team has their quarterback, or at least for next year. you got to see what Taylor Heineke has. Give him another full season, because the more you watch this kid... The more he makes plays, and and he's not a great quarterback, doesn't have the elite arm strength, he's going to get picked off here and there. But if you work with him to to eliminate some of those mistakes and some of those bad plays, I think there's something there with this kid. The other side of the coin, Seattle's dead in the water. Pete Carroll, I'm going to get to him in a second because maybe he goes somewhere to coach college football. You look at what's going on with Russell Wilson. It's time for him to move on. DK Metcalf only had a couple targets, and both were in the fourth quarter. Tyler Lockett had a couple big catches early. They never went back to him. Never threw him the ball again. They One throw that Tyler Lockett and Russ were on the wrong page, and, and it was an interception. So just a real strange thing going on in Seattle, and, and you, you're seeing something in Washington. I believe that the defense there is playing the way it played last year, even without Chase Young, and it's going to get better and better. So we'll see where things end up there. College football. Man, what's going on the last couple of days have been the two biggest stories in college football that I remember. First, on Sunday, we find out that Oklahoma coach Lincoln Riley, one of the best young coaches in college football, quarterback whisperer, is leaving Oklahoma to go to USC. Details of the deal, somewhere in the neighborhood of 11 or $12 million a year. They were buying both of his houses in Oklahoma, buying him a $6 million house in L.A., which a $6 million house is like an 800-square-foot ranch in L.A. Just crazy amount of money, unlimited use of the private jet. So you leave a Power 5 school and a school, Oklahoma, that's going from the Big 12 to the SEC, and you you go to the Pac-12. I get it. USC is one of the top five jobs in college football. But Oklahoma is one of the top 10. So you're going from one to the other. It's at best a slightly improvement. It's a slight improvement in job. But Lincoln Riley going to USC, I think you'll see immediate results there. There was a five-star quarterback that Oklahoma had recruited who was planning to go there next year. He's now backed off of his recruitment to Oklahoma, likely end up at USC with Lincoln Riley, and already the culture has changed at USC. And then last night, out of nowhere, LSU, which tried extremely hard to get Lincoln Riley to leave Oklahoma for LSU. Remember Ed Orgeron, who won a national championship just two years ago, is out at LSU, I I guess banging the uh, co-eds on campus. Doesn't go over big with the administration. So, you know, whoever ends up at LSU might want to throw that in the back of their mind. You probably 
shouldn't fish in the same small pond that you work in. But they pivoted from Lincoln Riley and ended up getting Notre Dame's Brian Kelly to end up going to LSU. Now, Notre Dame, and I'm going to talk about the playoff in a second. Notre Dame's going to be number six tonight, maybe number five in the playoff. They have a real chance to get in. And Brian Kelly leaves that situation with a, a potentially their bowl game may be a championship, a, a Final Four bowl game. He leaves that situation to go to Notre Dame. Reports of this surfaced last night. A copy of a text that he sent to all his players calling for a 7 o'clock meeting this morning to explain himself. The hell are you going to explain? Yeah, they offered me $20 million. I I had to go. It's retirement money. It's generational money. That's the explanation. But here's the thing. Coaches could do this all the time. Coaches could go from one to the other to the other. And everyone looks at it and goes, you know, it's kind of not right. If a player sits out a bowl game, people hate it. I'm one of those people that hates it when a player sits out a bowl game. But now you have coaches leaving before bowl games. The NCAA has to step in and prevent this from happening. No new coaching hires until after the last game has been concluded. It's got to be. You've got to put that in place. You cannot allow this crap to happen. The transfer portal, I never want to hear another coach bitch about the transfer portal. Because you're going to leave like Bobby Petrino did when he wrote a letter saying this was in the best interest of me and my family. These college coaches are the biggest freaking hypocrites. Brian Kelly, a week ago, would you ever? It was asked the question: Would you ever leave Notre Dame under your own volition, volition, other than to retire? Absolutely not. Never. Why would I? He quoted Mike Tomlin with a two hundred fifty million dollar check. Yeah. Well, guess what? He went from that quote, never, a week later, uh, sorry, got to go. What a bunch of crap. These college coaches are the biggest hypocrites in sports, in my opinion. Anyway, college football. This weekend is the conference championships. Going to be great. It's going to be really good. This has played itself out in a way that now there are six teams available. Georgia plays Alabama in the SEC championship. Georgia's the best team in the country. If Georgia wins, obviously they're the number one seed. Even if they lose, I believe they deserve to be the number one seed in the playoff. Alabama is right now going to, in my opinion tonight, going to be third. Alabama will be third likely tonight. They need to win to get in. If they lose, they're out. Bama needs to win to get in. Michigan, finally, Harbaugh gets over on Ohio State. Huge win for Harbaugh. Huge win for the Michigan program. I believe tonight they will be number two. Now, they play Iowa in the Big Ten Championship. They need to win that to finish their season. That's going to be a tough one. And if they finish the job, they're in. So right now, in my opinion, we've got Georgia and Michigan in. Bama likely will be out. Remember, they barely beat Auburn. They escaped against Auburn. Cincinnati has Houston this week. It'll be the second-ranked team they played all year. They haven't played another ranked team other than Houston. If they don't win convincingly, I'm sorry, the Notre Dame and Houston. If they don't win convincingly, Cincinnati's not a sure thing, even if they're undefeated. 
Notre Dame doesn't play anybody. They're sitting there. I've been saying all year they're going to get in. I still contend they will. But what I don't know is how will the voters use the Brian Kelly situation against them? Notre Dame doesn't have a coach right now for what would be a playoff game. Do they hold that against them as much as the fact that they don't have a a conference championship game? In Oklahoma State, which has no, in my opinion, no impressive wins all year. They played a bullshit schedule because the Big 12 sucks. They beat Baylor before. They played them this week in the Big 12 championship. They beat Oklahoma, which Oklahoma was very overrated anyway. Texas gave them a battle. Texas has lost five in a row. I don't see the love for Oklahoma State, but I wouldn't be surprised tonight to see Oklahoma State at five, Notre Dame at six. So uh, it's going to be fun to see what happens this weekend. College basketball. Syracuse goes down to the battle for Atlantis. They lose two out of three. The first game they lose to VCU, VCU played very good defense. And and a very astute, and I'm going to credit Jerry Burns, friend of mine, MCC men's basketball coach for a long time, and a great basketball coach. Watch the game with Jerry. And Jerry pointed out something that it's pretty obvious in hindsight, but I didn't see it till he said it. Syracuse has nobody who can beat a player off their dribble. So therefore, nobody's ever going to leave their man for help defense. If you think about basketball, if you've got a bunch of shooters, you got to get somebody open to get a shot. Syracuse doesn't beat anybody off the dribble, so therefore there's never been help defense coming over to leave their man to get an open shot. It's just cause and effect. If you don't have the athleticism or the ability to do that, you're going to have contested shots. And right now, that's the case. Buddy Bayheim is only 30, shooting 31% from three. Cole Swider, 27% from three. So if you look at what Syracuse has struggled with, it's getting those clean looks. Joe Girard's at 56% from three so far this year. He has gotten some good looks. He's forced it lately, and you saw it down in Atlantis. He, he got, he gets into a bad habit of forcing shots, trying to put, put the team on his shoulders at times, and it doesn't go well. Jimmy Beheim has shot it well, but hasn't shot it enough. So this is a team. They need Jesse Edwards. We saw that against VCU. Without him, they're simply not the same team. He got in foul trouble. They struggled against VCU. Game two, where they get the win against Arizona State and Bobby Hurley. And screw Bobby Hurley. Everyone knows he's an ass. So I'm glad they won that game. They had Jesse Edwards, and he played exceedingly well. The last game, they simply ran out of gas against a very good Auburn team. You know Bruce Pearl is writing checks to those players and cheating like the mother that he is because he's always cheated, he'll always cheat, and they continue to cheat. And because of that, they're the 19th team in the country, 19th ranked team in the country, and they're very good. Syracuse could not get it done. So the Orange are in trouble. And, and by the way, Last point of the podcast and last point on the Orange. They lost to Colgate by 15 at the Dome. They lost to a Colgate team that last night, my Niagara Purple Eagles, I'm a Niagara alum if you did not know that, my Niagara Purple Eagles went to Colgate to play the Red Raiders and beat them by 11. So what does that mean? If Colgate beats Syracuse by 15 there, 
Niagara goes on the road to beat Colgate by 11, that means Niagara's at least 26 points better than SU on a neutral site. I'm not, you know, this isn't talking trash. I'm just pointing out the obvious. It it is what it is. Got to get better. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a great week. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falcon Around Podcast.